The last sermon was titled, Just an Introduction. This sermon is titled, She Ever Shall Prevail. She Ever Shall Prevail. The topics in this sermon are manifold. Spiritual warfare, preservation of the saints, sola scriptura, and pastoral ministry. We're going to get all that from two verses, verses 3 and 4. If there was a thesis for the message for today, it would be something like this. Because the world is arrayed against the Lord and against his anointed, Jesus Christ, they likewise are arrayed against the church. However, as the body of Christ, we can be assured that victory is already ours. For Jesus Christ has already overcome the world for us. Nevertheless, the foes of God continue to rage against us. Rest assured, though, brothers and sisters, this is a temporary tribulation. God has given to his chosen seed sufficient protection against the devil and his seed. As the truth rings out in the hymn, the church is one foundation. She ever shall prevail. If you're keeping notes, again, in three sections. First section, the man. Second section, the word. And the third section is the foe. The man is the chosen instrument of God's protection. The word, the chosen means of God's protection. And the foe is the chosen opponent of God's protection. Let us turn now to the book of Jude and read with me. We'll start in chapter, or sorry, in verse 1 to give us context of where we've been. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let us go to our Master and Lord now in prayer. Lord, we ask that you would help us in this second message to receive and to feed on what you have prepared for us in your word this morning. We ask that you would strengthen us by it, that you would encourage us by it, that you would equip us by it, Lord, that we may be protected servants of the King. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, shortly before losing his life for Jesus Christ by Roman execution, the Apostle Paul, while imprisoned in Rome, wrote to Pastor Timothy, 
who remained in Ephesus. In this letter, his second letter to Timothy, the apostle sought to, quote, stir up Timothy to the faithful and diligent discharge of his duty as a minister of the gospel. Urging him to remain vigilant in protecting the scriptural treasure trove of truth against false teachers and their errors until Christ returns in glory. It is with this context in mind that we read what may have been Paul's final instruction to Timothy when he says this, I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. I believe this apostolic command was not just vital for Timothy and his ministry as an elder in Ephesus in the first century, but for all of us today. Even though this is a peculiar charge given to ministers of the gospel, It also has a general application for all believers who are commanded to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. And that has application to everyone who believes in Christ, everyone who is a slave to Christ in this room. I believe that is what Jude, the slave of Christ, was concerned with as well, guarding the faith, the sacred deposit of Scripture, from those who would seek to steal it and corrupt it, all to the attempted injury and defeat of the bride of Christ. So today's message will show us how our Father in Heaven has chosen to foil not only their plans, but the plans of the devil. Before I begin an exposition of the text, I want to start with a brief excursus, a question. What is historical theology? You may have heard that term before, historical theology. G.P. Fisher, who I believe is an able and ready guide in such matters, writes this. Historical theology is the history of doctrine as it is as it is recorded in a series of attempts made in successive periods to embody the contents of the gospel in clear and self-consistent propositions. Historical theology is based upon the confidence that we have, brothers and sisters, in the clarity, the clarity of Scripture. And not just the clarity of Scripture, but God's desire to preserve the truth of Scripture. That is what founda- that's what historical theology rests upon. If it wasn't for those two things, the clarity of Scripture and God's desire to preserve the truth in Scripture, historical theology would be a hopeless enterprise. So with that in mind, let's take a closer look at 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is what Paul had written to Timothy. Let's, let's turn there together if you're able. We'll spend just a brief amount of time in here as a, a springboard into uh, verse 3 of Jude. 2 Timothy chapter 1, turn there and put your finger on verse 12. 
I'll read it again. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, 1 through 4. I think we'll see all these things born out of even this one text. I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So first we have this apostolic declaration of God's decree to preserve doctrine. Paul says, I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. We have an apostolic charge to preserve and protect when Paul says to Timothy, retain the standard or the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. What is this standard or this pattern of sound words? Well, it is the scriptures, amen? But it is also developed teaching. Did Paul teach Timothy anything that is not found in Scripture? Or is the only thing Paul taught Timothy found in our Bibles? No, Paul taught Timothy much. What we have, what is necessary for life and salvation for us to be complete is found in Scripture. But certainly the Apostle Paul is teaching Timothy developed teaching. He's taking Timothy, his child in the faith, along the spiritual journey of how to interpret the scriptures, what the scriptures mean, and how to do that with others and teach other men who will do the same to multiply in the church. So this standard of sound words is developed teaching. Historical theology is observing the record of how this has been accomplished by the Spirit working in men historically. Historical theology is the process of clarifying theology by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what he means when he says, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So here we have clarity of the Word of God, objectivity of the truth, and preservation through the Holy Spirit. Again, here's one simple statement that ties it all together. Historical theology, what is it doing? What is historical theology doing? It makes visible the way Christ is adorning his bride through the preservation of his truth through history. I'll say it again. What is historical theology? Historical theology makes visible the way Christ is adorning his bride through the preservation of his truth, through history. Christ said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And historical theology is made visible how Christ is building his church today and continues to build it today. We're going to see that in Jude. So now that we're primed for an exposition of the text, let us look at verse 3. Heading number one, the man. The man, the instrument of God's protection. 
Jude writes this, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you. And you'll say about something else. We'll get to that. But let's look at the first greeting. Beloved, beloved, Jude is drawing a line in the sand. This is all coming off of our first sermon. We understand who Jude's writing to, those who are effectually called by God, those who are beloved by God, elected before the foundation of the world, those who are being kept for Christ Jesus. And now he's saying, beloved, Jude is drawing a line in the sand. He wants the saints there to know what side they are on, that they are beloved, beloved of him and beloved of God, beloved of him because they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's that supernatural love that every Christian has for another Christian. But they're also beloved of God. They are called and elected before the foundation of the world. But he's also drawing that line in the sand to show them what side he is on. He is not on the side of those false teachers whom he is writing this epistle in defense of. He will be showing who is on the other side of this line in the sand as he continues to give the reason for why he wrote this epistle the way he did. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, what is this common salvation? And there's some discussion about what really Jude means here. And again, we have implicit information given to us through the book of Jude. He doesn't draw out exactly what he means by common salvation. But we can say this. Jude recognizes as those who are effectually called by the Father to the Son, given as a loved gift from the Father to the Son, that they, as he, have the same judicial and legal standing in the courtroom of heaven. Jude is saying, I am on no higher ground than you are as it pertains my justification. And that's a reminder to all of us, again, as we talked about younger children observing their godly parents or grandparents, or even younger uh, children in the faith, observing older older, uh, believers in the faith, that we all have the same justified ground in the courtroom of heaven. It is the same imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that is given to me, that is given to a 10-year-old who is just baptized. It's Christ's righteousness. It's the same seamless robe of perfection that is given from our Savior to all those who are beloved of the Father and called before the foundation of the world to that salvation, but effectually called in time. So that is one foundation stone on what could be meant by common salvation. Also, clearly this falls in line with that. We have the same Christ. We have the same Savior. We have the same Holy Spirit. There are not different ways of salvation. There were not there was not a different way of salvation for the Jew in the Old Testament than there is for us today. There is one Christ. There is one Lord. There is one gospel. There is one way of salvation. There is only one way to the Father. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, and that goes for Old Testament saints or New Testament saints, comes to the Father but through me. 
we have a common salvation with all who are God's children. And this falls from that. We not only have the same judicial and legal standing in the courtroom of heaven, we not only have the same Christ and Holy Spirit, we have the same Father and Lord of all. In other words, and you'll hear this echoed through your New Testaments, there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. And that was an important detail in the early church, especially in that transition period between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We read about that in the book of Acts, where Jews would be gathering with Gentiles. And this idea that we are all on equal, uh, have an equal standing, would have been difficult for many, certainly of our Jewish brothers and sisters. Sounds a lot like Ephesians chapter 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But God has appointed an instrument of protection for those who belong to him without distinction. Paul goes on in the book of Ephesians after he says we have one God and one Lord, one spirit, one baptism, to say this, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. What Paul is saying is, There is danger in the church today, but God has given gifts. God has given some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For they are the ones who equip the saints. They are the ones who have a ministry to the saints. It is the minister's responsibility to feed and protect the sheep. And that is what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16. And this is really the beginning of Jude's argument for why he is writing the letter he eventually chose to to write. That God has given an instrument of God's protection and it is a man appointed for that task. And they are gifts from Christ from heaven to the church. And the church is better for them. But he hasn't just given the man who is the chosen instrument of God's protection. The man is not the one in whom we are to trust. It is the means that God has given as well that that man uses, and that is the word. The means of God's protection. Jude says this, 
I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Jude wants those he's writing to, those who are beloved, to contend earnestly for the faith. And this idea of contending and striving is for doctrinal purity. Contending and striving earnestly for the faith is contending and striving for doctrinal purity. I know that you feel the burden to do that and the responsibility to do that. I, as a pastor, feel the burden and the responsibility to do that in my own congregation. Your pastor feels the responsibility to do that in his congregation. And again, we are blessed that God gives men to do this, not even in local churches, but even as we gather together in associations, as we gather together more broadly in the body of Christ. And I praise God that that is exactly what your pastor is doing now as he is away from you. Heeding the call of Jude. Heeding the call of the Holy Spirit. It's contending and striving for doctrinal purity. It's contending and striving for objective truth. So much of our lives deal with subjective truths. I was talking with some brothers over lunch about the subjectivity concerning very important issues that concern our everyday lives. We have subjective choices to make, each of us. And it isn't always clear which is right and which is wrong. It's not always black and white. Praise God for when it is black and white. But the doctrine and the purity of the faith is objective. It's not subjective. This is objective truth. Where does this objective truth find itself? Where do we find it? In our hearts? In our emotions? In popular opinions? No. We find this objective truth in the Old Testament. We find this objective truth in the New Testament. The word of our Lord remains forever. And what Jude reminds us is that this is a single handing down, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. This is not a faith that is handed down in subsequent dispensations of church history. It's not a faith that takes on new objectivity as historical theology winds on, as Christ tarries to return and the church is being built, that there's new revelation given. No. This is the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. The same faith that we confess today is the same faith that was existing and being confessed at the closing of the canon. The oracles of God that we have today are the same oracles of God that believers had at the closing of the canon. Let's talk about the oracles of God for a second. Paul was answering an argument in the book of Romans about what advantage a Jew has. 
If this is true about Gentiles, being on equal standing in the church, not having the Jews not having a special privilege before the throne room of heaven because of their biological descent, think of all the hardships the Jews have gone through. What good is it to even be a Jew? What advantage does the Jew have? And Paul answers. What is the benefit of the circumcision? That's the question. Great in every respect. And he gives this as its first evidence. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were the special people that God had chosen as his covenant people to give them special revelation. Oh, God has been in the business since the foundation of the world to give general revelation. God has revealed himself from the very beginning, has he not? He wrote it on Adam's heart. He gave his law on Adam's heart. He made man in his image. There has never been a time when humanity was ignorant that there was a God. There was never a time when humanity was ignorant of what God commanded, of what God requires. But he gave something different to the Jews, something in addition, and that was special revelation. The oracles of God and how they were to be a beacon of light to the rest of the world because they had answers to questions that even the greatest minds and philosophers had no answers to. Yes, the philosophers knew God, and by common grace, they reasoned well too much about God. But they did not know the way of salvation. They did not know the promise of a Messiah. They did not know much. The oracles of God were given to the Jews. But listen, Judah saying that he wants you to appeal, that he's appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all hand, handed down to the saints. Contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. That's us. Old Testament and New Testament saints in the sense both have the oracles of God. Isn't that an interesting connection? If Paul is saying the Jews have an advantage because they were given the oracles of God, if an outsider came to you and said, what advantage do you have as a Christian? Well, certainly you're going to talk about Jesus. Certainly you're going to talk about salvation. Certainly you're going to talk about so many gifts that you've been given by the Holy Spirit. Your adoption but you could say, as Paul said about the Jews, well, first of all, the church has the oracles of God. This poses an, poses an interesting question. If the Jews had the oracles of God and the church have the oracles of God, is there some intimate connection between Israel and the church? Amen. And so, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, is a, a good analogy of faith text to use alongside why Jude is now under conviction 
to not write about the common salvation that he was planning on writing about, but is now changing course and saying, now I want to write to you about contending earnestly for the faith. 2 Timothy 3 is the context. But realize this, Paul says, that in the last days, in the end times, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. The very thing that I think Jude is going to be saying, these false teachers who have crept into the church, who are denying their only Lord and Master. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Verse 13, he goes on to say, But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the oracles of God, the scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Then he says this memorable thing. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Here's the point, brothers and sisters. As the means of God's protection, the word of God, the scripture itself is the sole infallible rule for faith and practice. But the truth contained therein must be interpreted. Think about any heresy that uses the Bible. That's the point. They use the Bible. Remember historical theology? Historical theology is the record of the series of attempts made in successive periods to embody the contents of the gospel in clear and self-consistent propositions, says J.P. Fisher. Now, what do we have in church history that allows us to do that very thing? What do we have in the church as a product of historical theology that helps us to do that very thing? The creeds and confessions of the church which serve to preserve and protect. There are four great creeds of the church. You may have heard of them. I'm sure you have in this church. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Definition, and the Athanasian Creed. These are known as the four great creeds of the church. And our confession, the 1689, which we confess, uses language explicitly from those creeds and confessions. There has been something going on since Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
And what has been going on is made clear through historical theology and enshrined, or I should not say enshrined, but contained in these creeds and confessions. I say all of that after I said the scripture itself is the sole infallible rule for faith and practice. Amen? Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Because there is a host of confessions that were born out of the Reformation. And you know what? Some of those confessional traditions do not contain things that we would believe. Traditions do not prove in and of themselves to be infallible standards. Nor do the creeds, strictly speaking. They're all known as subordinate standards. But hear me, nonetheless, they are standards. They are standards. This is hard for people who do not come from a Reformed background that have grown up holding confessions. This sounds a lot like other traditions that we would want to stay away from. But listen to what I'm saying. These subordinate standards of the creeds and the confessions are just that. They are subordinate standards. Subordinate to what? The scriptures. But they do have authority. They are nonetheless a standard and they have authority in the local church. On what basis do these creeds and confessions have authority in the local church? On the basis that they agree with scripture. They are indeed binding and authoritative where they agree with Scripture. Confessions and creeds evidence fallible men striving with the infallible word. And the Spirit is working in and through the historic confessions of faith in varied measure to guard and protect the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. They are a product of historical theology. So when Jude says to appeal, that he's appealing that you contend for the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. Brothers and sisters, we look to the scriptures as the sole infallible rule of our faith and practice, but not to the neglect of what Christ has been doing through church history in creeds and confessions, because they too are standards, and you are bound to them in as far as they agree with scripture. Remember the takeaway. Historical theology makes visible the way Christ is adorning his bride through the preservation of his truth through history. And we can see this work of the Spirit through these historic creeds and confessions, which are indeed products of historical theology. But if this is so, then what is the danger? I believe in the context of Paul's instruction to Timothy about the scriptures being the only God-breathed standard in our possession, he told him and us of the danger. But realize, quote, that in the last days difficult times will come. Lovers of pleasure, these men that creep in will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. These men were in the church then, and I believe they are in the church now. 
And Jude is reminding his readers of that very danger now. And that brings us to our last heading of the foe. The foe. We had the man, we had the word, and now we have the foe. The opponent of God's protection. Read with me in verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the reason why Jude gives as to why he had determined to write the letter the way he did. This is all from the word for. We know this linguistic uh, tool much. If you see the word for in your Bible, you ask what it's there for. So when Jude says that he appeals that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints, for, it's because, because of this. Because certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Jesus warns us of them in John chapter 10, verse 1. Remember? Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, He is a thief and a robber. Yes, these are men in the church then and today. And they were long before, long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. I think you can look in your Old Testament and you can see prophetic language of this. Jude is going to bring up Old Testament examples of their sure destruction as he continues to make his case in Jude. But I don't think he's talking necessarily about long beforehand in the Old Testament. I think what he is talking about is saying that these men were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation because it corresponds and evidences God's decree. God is the one who plans all things, who does all things after the counsel of his will. Amen? And all things means all things. You're telling me that false teachers who creep into the church is, are part of God's decree? Amen. But fear not. He's given us appointed men. He's given us his word as the means of that protection. And what Jude is saying now is that they're here. And that was 2,000 years ago. These are ungodly persons, Jude wants you to know. He describes them by their actions. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. Oftentimes sexual immorality. Remember Paul's warning to Timothy about these teachers creeping into widows' homes. I believe there's some kind of a connection. Licentiousness. And the examples that Jude will give after this about the destruction of these false teachers which, which await them has everything to do with sexual immorality. The angels that sinned 
in Genesis 6. Sodom and Gomorrah and the lewd acts that were done therein. Yes, these are licentious men. You can judge a tree by its fruit. And these are therefore condemned persons, marked out by the decree of God long before. How long before? When were you chosen? When did God elect you? Jude could say, long beforehand. And so these men were long beforehand marked out. Marked out by their actions. They use grace as an excuse to sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. They have the spirit of Antichrist, First John would say. They went out from us to show they were never truly of us. And they deny Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. <clears throat> Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid, avoid such men as these. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Paul says that the scriptures are able to make you complete, profitable for every good work. These men are good for no work. Are these the proto-Gnostics? Are these antinomians who hate the law? We know this. They have unbelief and hardened hearts. They're not members of the new covenant, although they claim to be teachers in it. They're imposters. And they're antichrists. We've seen the man, the pastor, the elder, the overseer, as the instrument of God's protection in verse 3a. We've seen the word, the scriptures, and the Holy Spirit's work through such men in church history and historical theology as the means of God's protection. 3b. We've seen the foe the opponents of God's protection, those who have crept in seeking to lead astray, corrupt and soil the purity of the bride of Christ, the church, in verse 4. Oh, how we refrain the psalmist in Psalm 27. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. In conclusion, I'm reminded of the church's one foundation where I took the title of the sermon, She Ever Shall Prevail. Listen to the words of the hymn writer. Though with a scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, contend once and for all for the faith that was handed down to the saints. Their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The church, brothers and sisters, shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend. Remember Jude said he's keeping you who are slaves to Christ. To guide, sustain, and cherish 
is with her to the end. Listen to verse 4 we just read as I read this last line. Though there be those that hate her and false sons in her pale, against or foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We thank you for encouraging and commanding us to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. We thank you for your word, which is the sole infallible rule for faith and practice, that rock upon which we stand, which makes us complete for every good work in Christ Jesus our Lord. But Lord, we also thank you for the work you have done in and through the church as you have been building it for the last 2,000 years. We thank you for godly men who have crafted creeds and confessions to put in clear and concise propositions the truth of your word so that we would be even more protected. Guard us by your Holy Spirit from such error. Build us up in your truth as we desire to grow and flourish and become even stronger in Christ Jesus so that we can be used of you in this fallen world until you call us home to glory. Thank you for the promise that the church will never fail, that Jesus is building it, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What confidence we have leaving this room this morning, going into this world to another week of challenges and heartache and struggle, May we all rest on this sermon and what you've taught us out of Jude, that the church shall ever prevail, and your truth shall ever prevail, and you've given us the means of that protection. Chiefly in your Son, Jesus Christ, who camps around the elect and protects them, who is with us even until the end of the age. Praise be to God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.